So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Uh, and David, you and I are not in the same building today. We are not. No, we're yep. all in different parts of the uh, parts of the t- city. At least we're in town. <laughs> yeah, at least we're in town. Although we're bringing a guest from the other part of the country. Yeah, uh, West Coast. Now, yeah. So we're doing social distancing. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> all part of this coronavirus thing. Yeah. I got to tell you. Oh, my. Oh, my, my. It's, it's crazy. Uh, it's my wife's birthday today. We were uh, to have had a party and, uh, you know, we canceled. We canceled the party. Oh, yeah. For, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, thinking about this, David, I am struck by uh, the failure you know, we're doing what we can do right now because there's no effective treatment for the uh, coronavirus. Right. So we're doing what we can with quarantining and isolating and doing social distancing to try to prevent transmission. But I remember that back in the very beginning, after China announced the emergence of the new virus and the steps that they were taking to contain it, I remember epidemiologists warning us that never in history has a quarantine policy successfully contained a pandemic. Uh. Ah, And the reason, they said, is that we humans have an instinctive... Uh, drive to deny unpleasant realities and avoid painful consequences. Right. So if the consequence for being sick is going to be that I'm going to be isolated, uh, that I'm going to be stigmatized, I'm going to be separated, then I don't want to admit to anybody else or even to myself that I'm sick. Right. Okay. So that basic drive pushes the problem underground, the issue then is able to, to, you know, escape and spread. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah. So if I'm afraid of admitting that I'm sick, then I just have a cold. It's not the, it's just this, uh, it's a sore throat. It's not that bad. Um, I'm not drinking that much. Right. Um, I only use porn occasionally. Yeah. Or that was the last time, or nobody else is affected by what I do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and this is how pandemics spread. You know, I am certainly concerned about the coronavirus. I'm much more concerned about the porn pandemic, basically. Uh, 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 myself. Mm. Yeah. 
uh, as a Christian, when, when, for example, when the most reputable recent uh, survey uh, revealed that 67% of men in Christian churches are looking at porn on a regular basis. Right. To me, by any measure, that's, that's a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when, when, when the rate of erectile dysfunction among males 18 to 35 globally has jumped in just 20 years, uh, since, since the, since the uh, debut of the first porn streaming site and the introduction of the iPhone in 2006, 2007, when the rate of erectile dysfunction among males in that age group has jumped from a historically stable 2% to 30%. Wow. That's a pandemic. Yeah. Okay. With profound cultural repercussions. Right. Right. And yet, at least in the Christian world that I grew up in and where I spend most of my time, our only approach to treating it is well, we don't have a treatment. Yeah. We don't know that there's a treatment. Our only approach to the sickness is to any diagnosis, to any admission, is quarantine. Yeah. Isolation, separate. Right. When we know that there actually is a treatment that involves not separating people, but bringing them together. Yeah. For uh huh. Well, you know, for honest conversation. Yeah, and it, interestingly, on my way in this morning, I was listening to NPR, and there's a study going on about the psychological uh, effects of quarantine on the people involved. Um, uh-huh. Just how it um, kind of alters their perception and their their ability to to. Ex- to um, to experience reality, it, I mean, it skews their relational capacity, and yeah. so when they kind of when they come out of this situation, they have a reentry, but they have a very uh, skewed kind of, very much like a solitary confinement person. You know, I mean, we right, know yeah, that yeah. that that is uh, you know actually a form of cruelty, but um, and and so when people are in this exile for, for whatever purposes, there's going to be a psychological uh, detriment. There's going to be something to their mental health. That's going to suffer. And maybe now we can uh, see some of the potential positive uses of social media. The fact that we at least can connect remotely. Now Mm -hmm. I can, uh, I'm grateful for the online virtual meetings that the Samson Society can have. And so I can be online with a bunch of other men yeah. on a daily basis. Boy, that sure helps. Yeah. Uh, well, we know that there is a treatment for addiction. And we have, as a guest this week, boy, I have so been looking forward to this interview. Uh, we've got a great guest who is an expert, a seasoned expert in the treatment of addiction and in the uh, treatment and care for those affected by uh, addiction. You are, oh man, you are not going to want to miss this. (laughs) Stay tuned. Hang with us. Prepare to have your mind blown. We'll be back in a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. 
And uh, we have a guest today. What a privilege to have this man on the show. Uh, Dr. Robert Weiss, uh, the legendary Dr. Weiss, Dr. Rob, uh, Chief Clinical Officer at Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs in L.A. That's a residential treatment center for compulsive sexual behavior related to drug abuse and, and chemsex. Dr. Weiss, a clinical social worker and a sexologist, is author of 10 books on human sexuality, technology, and relationship intimacy, including Sex Addiction 101, out of the doghouse and his newest pro-dependence. I think, uh, I believe that's the newest. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah. All available on Amazon over the past two decades, Rob has created multiple residential and IOP treatment programs, all focused on the intersection of adult attachment disorders and addictions. His top 10 global sexual health podcast, sex, love, and addiction can be found on Apple, Spotify, and all podcast outlets. Uh, thank you so much. Welcome to the show, Dr. Weiss. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure. It's great uh, to have you. Yeah. Uh, I've got to tell you, I uh, what prompted me, I, I, I'm surprised and so honored that you actually uh, uh, found the time to join us after listening to uh, Sex Addiction 101. I got the Audible version. Uh, so impressed with just that comprehensive summary of uh, the current state of what we know and such great practical advice. I, I actually uh, like the word legendary. You were leading with that one earlier. If you want to go with that, I kind of like legendary. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hear your name invoked often when I am in the company of others who are working in this field. You are universally acknowledged as uh, you know a sage, an expert. I know some stuff. We can listen to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you've been around a while. So what would you like to talk about? <laughs> well, let's first of all talk about you. We, we do like to get personal ah. on the show with all of our guests. And uh, we like to know your backstory. What brought you into the field of endeavor that you're now in? What's the long and winding road that got you here? Well, I'm a sex addict, big surprise. Uh, and I just say that because, you know, so many of us in alcohol recovery are uh, helping people who are alcoholics. And um mm-hmm. And I entered the field at a time when really not a whole lot of people knew what this was about. I started in the 1980s in my own recovery. And by the 90s, I decided to go into the field. And I was working with this guy named Patrick Carnes, who had really invented Mm. the field. And I got trained, you know, and I did it the hard way. I opened a treatment center. I ran it for 17 years and uh, wrote a lot of books, wrote a lot of articles. Just, you know, I, I think I for me, I think the promises came true that I don't have anything I'm ashamed about. I don't have anything I'm embarrassed about. I don't have anything to hide from my past. I, I find all of it is a, a key and an opportunity to help people today, and especially around sexual issues because, you know, there's so much shame and, and uh, it's so hard to talk about. And I don't care. <laughs> to talk to me about it, no problem. I'm glad to give you answers, which is what people really want. Yeah. Boy, that is just wonderful. And, and uh, yeah, I've got the same story, uh, Dr. Weiss. Uh, I'm a recovering sex addict. Uh, David uh, describes himself as an alcoholic. Uh, but the amazing thing is we share this inner architecture. We're, we're on the same road together. It's the same path to healing. Well, we started out with um, the same sort of problematic architecture, and we're working very hard to, you know, uh, uh, keep it fresh and not go back to where we were every single day. Keep, keep remembering. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think we're kind of uh, like, you know, us addicts, we're kind of like computers that went wrong. But if you run the right software, it'll be okay. You know, it'll be okay. Um, we yeah. still got kind of ganky computers, but but with that right recovery software, we can get through life like everybody else, even pretty good sometimes. Oh, that's fantastic. So true. Um, I, I want to ask you a question, if I can, uh, about intimacy. How has your understanding of intimacy changed over time from when you first entered recovery back in the 80s to where you are today? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think that intimacy meant sex to me. I mean, heck, uh, um, uh, everything meant sex to me back then. Uh, the phone rang, yeah. it meant sex. Having me dinner, it meant sex. But, um, <laughs> but intimacy in particular, I think, you know, for many people, even today, does mean sex. And it's one of the things I have to teach clients early on is that intimacy can involve sex, but you can be very intimate and have it, you can be very intimate with a friend. Intimacy involves being known. Yes. And I think that, and I'll say more about that, but I think that what you touched on this question really speaks to the, the journey of recovery itself for so many of us, which is about being selfish and being self-focused and pushing people out of the way to get what we want and realizing how empty that is and how much we end up hurting people. Um, to the opposite of that, which is caring and being empathic and being curious and being of service and letting other people know who we are. So in many ways, the journey of recovery is one of being non-intimate to if you really embrace recovery, meaning complete and full rigorous honesty and really being known and understood and respected by others, you're a very intimate person. And th so, so sexual intimacy, you know, that's a different thing. I mean, that has to do with being with a romantic partner who knows you deeply in every arena, including sex. So a lot of couples, for example, I don't think they're particularly intimate because the guy's running in saying, I want to put on a performance and be the hardest, biggest, you know, strongest. And she's thinking whatever she's thinking. And it's like, well, those people aren't intimate at all. They may be having great sex, but they don't even know each other. And they certainly don't think they could laugh during sex. People who laugh during sex, they're having fun. That's an intimate couple. Anyway, that's a long answer, but that, that's kind of how I look at it. That's a beautiful answer. I, I, I was especially struck by your inclusion of that phrase of, you know, allowing ourselves to be fully known as part of intimacy, mm -hmm. which is something that as active addicts uh, mm -hmm. was not part of our vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Right. Compartmentalization. Uh, sure. There's a tremendous amount of fear around the idea that I might actually be known back then because of so much shame. At least that's my experience. Is that yours? Well, I didn't want, I wanted people to know the parts of me that I wanted them to know when I was an active addict. And I didn't want them to know the parts of me that I didn't want them to know. And, mm. you know, um, I mean, I'm going to say this, um, the word integrity has a lot of meaning to me in recovery. And, uh, and I think of it in a very specific way. Um, I understand to me what integrity means to me. And uh, I mean, I named a treatment center seeking integrity. I named a previous center sexual integrity. These are words that have meaning to me. And the word integrity, you know, it comes from the word integration. It's about bringing separate parts into a whole. Yes. And when you're in an addict, active addict, you're in pieces. You know, you're the person you present to this family member. You're the person you present at work. You're the person who's hanging out, getting loaded, you know, but you're different people. And sometimes as the addiction gets worse, you don't want those people to be known by other people. You kind of split yourself into parts. And, mm. and that really is some of the sort of soul crushing pain of addiction is you no longer are one person. You're a broken person. Well, so, Dr. Weiss, would it be fair to say that at the um, 
at the root of that too, when we're active in our addiction, me as a substance use uh, person, I didn't know myself. It was hard for me to let anyone know me when there were things I didn't come to grips with until I got sober. I didn't even want to see or acknowledge until I got into recovery. So I I don't even know if I had the capacity to uh, let others know me. I didn't even know me. You know, David, that's a great um, comment. And I think that you're right. It isn't that I want to hide myself because I know myself so well. It's just all I know. It's more reactive. Uh, These people won't like this thing, so I'll hide it. Those people won't like that. I'm not going to get away with this over here. And And we end up falling into boxes that we don't even understand. And you're right. I think only in treatment or in recovery does the process of integration begin. Right. Wow. Um, One of the things I really loved about um, Sex Addiction 101 was uh, the amount of time that you devoted in that book to talking to partners. Uh, You had great advice for partners. How much of your work at the treatment center has involved family therapy or couples therapy or partner work in addiction to the the addict? So in the field of sex addiction, partners always came second. I mean, they were in the past people who made treatment happen because many, many of our referrals are wife or partner referred. But in the end, we'd just be treating the addict and the partner and the and then they just kind of go home. And that wasn't right. Um, now we're much more inclusive in partners. So, for example, I want partners to write a letter before someone comes. I want to have their written experience of what they've been through. And then we're going to read that in group with the addict there. This is what this is your port, partner's voice in the room with all these other men. And then we're going to be having a couple sessions and we're going to be doing couples work all the way through. So the partner's not there and I don't think they should be. And I'll say something about that in a second, but they are involved and informed. They don't know anything. Almost nothing goes on that they're not aware of. They may not know the detail, but they understand the general activity that's going on in treatment and they're involved in it. And um, I think this is especially important because the addict has left them out and treatment centers have traditionally left them out. But does the, the partner doesn't need to be in treatment because the partner's not an addict. The partner hasn't been seeing prostitutes, having affairs, hooking up on apps, using porn. The partner's been traumatized. So the partner's experience of trauma and abuse and being lied to and all of that, they have a separate trajectory of healing, and that can take as long as a year. Um, the addicts are going to be in recovery for their lives, but the basics of addiction treatment, they need to learn in treatment. In other words, I've got to teach somebody how to stop acting out, what it means, where it came from, and how to live a different life. And I need them for a few weeks to do that. And the grief and loss of a partner, that's going to go on for a very long time. It's a different different process. But yes, they're involved for sure. Yeah, yeah. Now, kind of the old uh, paradigm that was very much in force when I entered recovery 21 years ago. Uh, I remember hearing. Uh, I, you know, I've I've never met your wife, but I know she's sick because she married you. Mm-hmm. Um, she, I was an addict. She was a codependent. That was the only language we really had. And I got to tell you, my wife did not react well to being held responsible in any way for my behavior. Um, and so the Anon groups really didn't fit her very well. Mm-hmm. That was before we really began to understand that uh, a betrayed spouse really displays many 
of the classic symptoms of PTSD uh, and that some we needed to treat partners in a different way. Can you kind of open that up for us? Talk some more about that. Well, I, I, I mean, there's a lot to say about partners and families, and you, you may know I've written a, a written. Sorry about that. The, <laughs> there's a lot to say about partners and families, and you may know that I've written a book called Pro Dependence, um, Pro Dependence rather than Codependence. Mm-hmm. And um, I never liked the codependency model. I never liked this idea that someone comes in and they've stood by you and they've worked three jobs and they've given up their life to try to help you and the family and they've gained weight and they've stopped focusing on recreation and they're not, and they're nagging and they're complaining and they've become someone that they never wanted to be really all to try to get you better (laughs) and to try to get your attention. And then they come into treatment and we ask them questions like what was happening to you when you grew up and what was going on in your relationship. And basically we start to imply slowly and very directly to the partner that you had a part in this addiction. And I just don't believe that's the way it works. I I think that is absolutely false. I think that codependency has been uh, a mistake in the therapeutic community. I think as a mental health professional, it was an interesting idea that raced across the pop culture meaning women should push men aside and break through that glass ceiling and not be dependent on men. But ultimately, that's not the mental health environment we live in today. And I think the message of codependency and women to love too much and all that crap is really just uh, uh, another way of shaming and blaming partners. Wow. You you know, Nathan, you just said something earlier. Um, I studied this. I did my PhD in the study of codependency. That's why I felt the freedom to, that's why I feel the freedom to say the things I'm saying. And Um, you know, before codependency came along, the way that wives and partners and spouses of alcoholics and addicts were looked at were, well, let me just use a quote. Um, this is from William White, William White, who was our sort of, uh, addiction historian in the addiction world. He did all of the history of the addiction field. And he would say, um, that basically throughout the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, the the wife of an alcoholic was basically, well, the message was out of psychotherapy and and the AA world, you would drink too if you had married her. Yeah, Um, yeah. (laughs) I may have even used that. (laughs) What you were seeing was the end point. When you see a partner, when someone's coming into treatment, you're seeing the end point of a a process of... um, painful loss that that partner has been going through. So let, let me try to say what I think. I think partners and family members need to be celebrated. I think that anybody who spends it two years or three years slogging through the misery of my addiction and they're willing to hang in there with me, that is someone I would call a hero. Yes. And if I had cancer and you read every book and worked three jobs and gained 20 pounds and nagged me all the time to take, to do my chemo, you would be my hero. But for some reason, if I have an addiction and you are nagging at me and complaining and gain weight and there's something wrong with you and that doesn't make any sense. So I did investigate the whole field, the whole history. I read every book and there are 370 of them on codependency, 370 books. And I say to you and all therapists and to you, David, which is the right one, (laughs) which one tells us how to practice codependency? I don't think the whole thing works. Yeah. I think that we have done a, a a real disservice to our partners and our family and parents of addicts by trying to get them to move away from the love they have for us and then blame them for it. Well, is um, this because we have a moralized perspective on addiction and and what that is, Doctor Rob? Because you know, I where don't, did it come from? 
Yeah. What? Because yeah, we because oh, well, I, I love addicts. your. Yeah. Ahead, well, I just was going to say I love your analogy about the the uh, the caregiving spouse uh, being applauded and 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 a hero, and yet the person that's hanging in with the person suffering from some type of uh, addictive unwanted behaviors uh, is stigmatized. Uh, and I wonder I if it's moralism well, or something. Well, David, caregivers have always been stigmatized, first of all. You know, if you're a nurse, if you're a doctor, if you're a, a social worker, if you're a teacher, if you're a, a, a mother, the role of caregiver to a sick person has always been, it's a female gender role. It's always been devalued in our culture. You know, uh, nurses and teachers aren't paid the same amount as business people. Why is that? Because we don't value them as much, very simply. Mm -hmm. So um, female gender roles are always devalued. And then the partner of someone who's an addict, well, add addiction is already stigmatized. Right. I mean, if you marry someone who has cancer, poor dear, you know, you never knew that was going to happen. If you marry an addict, well, you should have known better. What are you thinking? Like, these people met 14 years ago. They fell in love. He didn't know she was going to start drinking. He didn't know she was going to get stuck on opiates. That's a bunch of crap. Mm -hmm. So they, this family ends up in a disaster, whether it's a couple or a family you know, with kids. And then we blame the strongest person in the group, the one who's been trying to hold it together the whole time. And then, as you said, like uh, I think it was one of your spouses, you said they get angry. Why are you blaming me? I've been doing everything. Some of the more weak and vulnerable partners will say, okay, I guess I'm codependent. I'll have to look at that. I think I'm a stronger one. Say, screw you. I'm out of here. I'm not going to be blamed for what I did. Yeah. So to yeah. use yeah. a model like codependency is to push one of the strongest pieces of the recovery process away. Mm -hmm. So I wrote this book called Prodependence. And let me, I guess let me frame it in a different way for you. For many years, we've come in mental health from a perspective of self-actualization. You know, we need to grow to be the best me we can be. I want to, you know, all the est and life spring and personal development and all the stuff we did in the 80s and 90s, uh, that all brought about people like Bill Clinton, you know, incredibly bright, incredibly smart, incredibly intellectual, but really dumb as dirt when it comes to emotions and connections and relationships. That was the standard bearer of the me generation. I, I think today, you know, we've moved from self-actualization, I need to be the best me I can be as a sign of mental health, to more looking at our connections, our relationships, or our attachments as being yes. an equal sign of mental health. So it isn't just about how much I can do or achieve. It's also how good a husband am I? How good of a dad am I, a partner, a member of my community, my church, my family? My, how good a coworker? How good am I at listening and being empathic and compassionate and also having boundaries? You know, these are strengths too. So when you take attachment into account and you look at the world that mental health is in today, we understand that a partner who stands by a troubled other, that their willingness to put up with the pain, their willingness to get every single book and read about the problem is not a vulnerability. It's a strength. Yes. And, and they, they don't stick with us because we're so broken and they want to play out their brokenness. They stick with us because they loved us and they saw a family with us and they were attached to us and they are fighting, even giving up parts of themselves to do it, to get us sober so they can have back the life that we had thought we would have in the beginning, whether that's me being a parent or whether it's a parent or a spouse. So pro-dependence says it's time to celebrate partners. Boundaries, sure. Self-care, sure. Those are important things. But don't tell me a partner that brings bottles home 
to their alcoholic husband is anything more than doing harm reduction. You know, don't tell me she's enabling her husband. She's just trying to get him drink at the time of day. So maybe he doesn't drive her kids drunk. You know, she brings him a bottle home at night. Maybe he won't drink during the day. I call that clever, not dysfunctional. So um, I have taken codependency and I put it, I took it on a complete 180. And I said, all these things we've been blaming people for, why don't we celebrate them? And that's pro-dependence. Wow. Your wife would like it. Oh, I, I cannot wait to play this for my wife. <laughs> no, seriously. I know. Hey, yeah. Earn me 12 cents. Buy a book. Okay. <laughs> okay. Will do. Will do. Uh, you know, Allie, God bless her. Uh, it's her birthday today, by the way. Happy she, birthday, uh, Allie. You were right all along. Oh, and she she hung in with me for 20 miserable years mm. uh, before I got into recovery. What a hero. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and yet, it, what so often I hear from the men that I walk with who are listening to other experts is, you know, they do, they say, look, I am doing my work. What is wrong with her? Why won't she do her work? They don't and they hand women. Yeah. They hand her a bunch understand. of assignments that she's got to do. <laughs> yes. Because the, the history of codependency is to treat a partner like an addict. Yeah. We, we addicts, right? We need our denial confronted. What the heck were you thinking? Okay, I know I get treatment. I've been doing treatment for 25 years. Um, I run a treatment center called Seeking Integrity. Come find me. I know what treatment is. And, uh, you know, what do we do in treatment? We break an addict open like an egg and help them see how they haven't been seeing the world properly. And then we help comfort them and support them that they weren't a bad person, that they learned the wrong lessons. We're going to teach them new ones. And then we teach them the new ones and we teach them how to not act, not act out and how to connect to people. And we push them back out in the world. Is that what partners need? Does a wife or a parent need to be confronted about the love they gave? Do they need, instru- need to be instructed on how to give love differently because they've been addicted to love? No, that's a bunch of crap. Okay. What they need is comfort and support for the 20 years of misery, for the trauma of living with someone when you don't know if they're going to come home or that police are going to bring them home. That's what they're living with. And it's, they're not addicted to us. They're obsessed with the problem. They want it to go away and they bend themselves inside out, upside down. They turn themselves into people they wish they weren't just to try to get this problem to go away so that we can be a happy family, a happy couple, whatever it is. And we blame them for it. It's crazy, right? Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. This is, <laughs> uh, this is so good. I am just, <laughs> I'm, bes- I'm beside myself here uh, <laughs> because I've been bothered the whole time by this codependency deal. I really have. And uh, so grateful for you shining a new light on it. Well, let's say this. The people who created uh, it, you know, uh, Claudia Black, PML, you know, they were very sincere and they had good intentions. They saw partners who were doing too much, giving too much, and they were trying to find a solution to get these partners to focus more on themselves. The problem was, is that those folks all wrote books that all say, and in these books, in the 80s, my dad was an alcoholic, abusive man, and I married an alcoholic, abusive man. That's Claudia Black and Pia Melody and all those folks. So these women were writing about their own experience, which was useful and true for them. But I'm sure there are people who've married addicts and alcoholics who don't have a trauma history, who didn't have that dysfunction, but became dysfunctional because they're living with a dysfunctional person. 
Dr. Rob, would you say that the, um, the treatment world, so to speak, is making more of a shift toward your uh, way of thinking about the pro-dependence? Um, they may or may not call it that. I know you've coined that uh, term, but that is, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I'm hearing a lot of people that are rethinking codependency when I'm yes. uh, going into places and meeting with therapists and treatment and that it may be a paradigm that isn't um, proving out to be helpful. Um, well, I would say the prodependence is the next paradigm. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't say that lightly. Um, I have, uh, this book came out in the uh, summer of 2018. And about 10 weeks ago, which is, you know, a year and a half, two years later, whatever it is, I was in Australia and a woman came to me while I was speaking and said, would you mind dropping in on one of my group therapies? And I said, you know, I don't really go to people's practices when I'm out of the country. She said, no, 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 we're doing a prodependence group. Wow. And then I was in, then I was in Singapore about three weeks ago because I teach overseas a lot. Well, I used to teach overseas a lot and, uh, <laughs> and health conditions being what they are. And, uh, and I was the same thing. I was in Singapore and I was having lunch and a woman said, you know, I'm doing this great pro-dependence group. And I said, what? <laughs> because you see, we don't live in a global world. Now I do podcasts about pro-dependence. I do webinars about pro-dependence. People are learning. And so what happened was, is, is there's an organization named Rutledge or Taylor Francis. And Rutledge Taylor Francis is the largest academic publisher in the world. And they are the largest academic publisher for all things psychological. And they approached me and they said, you know, we've been looking for many years for an alternative to codependency. And we think that this might be it. And we wonder if you would write a clinical guide and workbook. So I'll have my first hardcover book coming out from an academic publisher uh, next year. And that will be a clinical guide and workbook because this is going to become a new way where we're all going to work with partners. What I've done Mm. um, is created a legacy for myself. I've created a paradigm that is going to be embraced universally, or at least a lot of folks are looking at it. And you're right. For years, people are saying codependency doesn't work. I don't really like it, but there is no other model. You see, there isn't period zero. I studied this. I did a PhD 35 years. We have so many models since 1982 or 85 of for addicts. We have sober, non, I mean, we have, whether you like it or not, we have harm reduction. We have Buddhist recovery. We have all kinds of recovery. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. What do we have for partners? We have nothing for families. People have in their practices developed various different ways for, or, or agencies for working with families. There are places that would say, we don't use codependency anymore. And I would say to them, what do you use? They don't have a name for it. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. And the reason that I wrote Prodependence is not for you or me. I wrote it for students. What are we going to teach the person who's going to school? Or which one of the 370 books on codependency? May I say that we do have a formal way that we diagnose things in our country, in our world, whether you like it or not. We do have labels that diagnose people. We can say and have insurance pay for someone being depressed, for someone uh, having an addiction, for someone being bipolar. Can we bill for someone being codependent? No. Yeah. Have we ever had a diagnosis in the world, in any diagnostic manual for codependency? No. It's never been a diagnosis in the mental health world. So in my belief system, it's a pop culture notion. It always has been. And we actually need a seriously useful uh, model that we can take into our hospitals and treatment centers and more lovingly and supportively uh, help families. So, yeah, I think this yeah. is a big deal. Dr. Rob, how do you see the pro-dependence um, empowering uh, a partner, a oh family member? 
and what what kind of changes can a family anticipate uh, by buying in, so to speak, to this kind of new paradigm to them? Well, there's nothing to buy into because they completely understand from the get-go that what they've been doing is trying to love someone to health. And so I think the approach for me with families and what this is about is saying to them, you haven't, you may have made some mistakes in how you tried to get this person sober or help them, but you didn't do it for any reason but love. Mm. And every action you took, whether it was helpful or it was not, whether you were nagging, complaining, or bringing soup to someone, um, that was just love. So the whole paradigm shift of don't do this and don't do that and stop doing this and you're enabling and you're enmeshed and it all goes away. Because I don't think partners are enabling. I think they're deeply committed to helping. And I don't think they're enmeshed. I think that they love the person and they want to make it better. I don't think they're nagging, complaining or whining because they are awful people or what they have trauma. I think they're trying to affect a change in a system that won't change and they're just raising their voices louder. So when you look at all those behaviors, and you see them as attempts to love into a situation that won't change. And it's incredibly frustrating and hard for someone who loves and can't get love back or can't get that person well. The whole thing changes. I will to redirect a partner and a family member to do something differently. But I'll say, you know, that didn't work out so well. Why don't we try this? I'm not going to say that didn't work out because that's a repetition of what you used to do in your family and your dad. Who cares about all that crap? <laughs> that's not important right now. Even if someone does have trauma, even if they do have issues to work out, when someone is newly sober, that person they love, whether it's their child or their husband, that's not the time to look at it. That's the time to say, good for you. Good job. Let's get through this. A year from now, when the person's been sober and the crisis is over, Maybe then if they want to look at how they acted when the person was using, we could look at it and we could talk about it, but we don't have to call it out and give them bad names for having to try to love somebody who was failing. Mm. And I'll give you one more, one more. How does it affect the addict if I use this model? I mean, for one thing, I think addicts have loved codependency because it's given us a reason to say, well, if she would just stop nagging and complaining, if she doesn't hadn't brought her mother over to, into this situation, I wouldn't have started drinking again. As if addicts could, as if we could, we ever do anything for someone else. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no one is going to make me drink. That's my decision. Nobody, right. you can nag me, you can, you know, I could go for a walk. There are lots of things. So this idea that your codependency is a problem for my recovery, it is not. It is not my problem. It's your problem. My problem is staying sober. And, and think about this under codependency. And I really, gentlemen, I want you to think about this as an addict under codependency. I always knew that the message my spouse or parent was being given is the following. Well, especially a spouse. You know, he's been sick all along and you've been sick all along. And once you get better, you won't want to be with him anymore unless he gets better. And in fact, if you'd been healthier in the beginning, you never would have married him. Mm -hmm. That makes me feel really crappy as an addict, I have to say, because it means I'm damaged goods all the way through. Yeah. But what if, you know, your partner, this is pro-dependence. You know, your partner loved you and the two of you had something meaningful and she or he is still holding on to that 10 years later. They are still holding on to the good piece of you that they saw all along, and they're willing to hang in there with you with the hope that that good guy is going to come back when you get sober. I think that's amazing. And so 
what that says to the addict is, oh, that person is staying not because they're broken, but because they see the good in me and they want it to come back. That means there might be good in me. And that is a whole different shift for the addict. So yeah, I'm pretty happy about all this because I think it's, as you said, long overdue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Let me ask you uh, just a little bit more about kind of the therapeutic approach. How do we care for, we're going to celebrate the partner, Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm assuming pro-dependence is more than just, you know, throwing a party. How do we, how do we help? um, Is... I like, I don't, I'm sure you're familiar with Maya Salowitz, our, our approach to addiction really as disordered learning more than disease. Yes. Um, and I don't know I how you feel that. about that idea. Traumatic disordered learning. Yeah. Yeah. Is there also disordered learning on the part of the partner and in celebration? Is that how we take approach to, uh, you know, changing the dynamics within the relationship? Well, I don't necessarily know that dynamics need to change. I mean, the addict needs to stop ah. using and acting out. The partner, I, here's a thought. What's the problem? Is it my history of trauma and my trying to save you and all the things that I've been doing? Or is the problem my drinking? Because if the problem is my drinking and my drinking has been driving you crazy, maybe when I stop drinking and we give you, the partner, a lot of support, a lot of love, a lot of validation, a lot of resources, a lot of massage, a lot of help, you're just going to be better. Like maybe uh, you don't need to find a new way to relive your life because there was nothing wrong with you in the first place. Maybe you became someone you never wanted to be because of my drinking. And when yes. I stop drinking over time with support and love, you're going to be the person you always were or even better because now there's the hope for a change. Mm. Maybe there's nothing wrong with partners at all. <sighs> your wow. wife's going to love that. She most certainly is. And I love it. You're right. This actually is good news for me. Yeah. Why? As the addict. As the addict, because I have felt myself to be damaged goods that somehow. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I mean, we are, but but not not like that. Yeah. Not in a shamed way, right? Right. Not in a shamed way. Right, right, right. It, but she isn't attracted to me because I was defective. That's right. She was attracted to you because she loved you and she fell in love with you. You had things you shared. You had wonderful times together and you grew all this stuff together. And then unfortunately, your disease took hold like diabetes. Right. Only yeah. unlike diabetes, you probably aren't taking your medicine. You're not listening and you're getting worse and worse and worse. And here's this person who loves you and has had an amazing life with you, watching you go down the drain and watching you knowing that there are simple things you could do to make it better and you're not doing them. And so she or he starts yelling and nagging and complaining because if you just did these things, you'd get better, but you won't do them. And that makes them crazy because if you just did them, then everything you had before could come back. So I don't think this is that hard to understand. I think codependency is hard to understand. Yeah. Hey, that's my dog. Hey, will you not make all that noise? I'm on TV. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Guys, we should wrap this up and do some more maybe in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so very much uh, for interrupting your schedule, not just once, but twice, because this is our second attempt to. Not a problem. Uh, <laughs> Would you like to ask uh, them how they could 
Yeah, that's that's the next question. The logical question: How do our listeners contact you? How do they get? How do they get connected to Seeking Integrity? Uh, how do they find your podcast? All that. Well, it's not hard to find me. I think if you just typed in Rob Weiss and sex, you'd find me because okay. I have been treating and writing books about sex for so long. But in any case, um, I'm Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com, and I answer every question or I make sure it gets answered. Um, you, Sex, Love, and Addiction is the podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction, and that's on all your usual podcast places. We've got some pretty famous, amazing therapists on that podcast. I'm pretty grateful for it. And then I do weekly webinars. Anyone in the world can come ask me questions for free. I'm on Sex, Love, and Addiction, sexloveandaddiction.com every Monday night. And I'm on intherooms.com. My dog doesn't like that I'm on um, here today. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm on intherooms.com every Friday night. And I say that because, you know, when I was in early recovery, um, people like Claudia Black and P. Melody and Pat Carnes, they were my heroes, John Bradshaw, but I couldn't access them. I couldn't talk to them. I could read their books. I could be see a therapist who'd been trained by them. But today, you know, I, I, get, I can and do. I'm online an hour, two hours a week. I've been doing this for three years. I just sit and answer questions. It's such great service for me. Wow. I get to just talk to people in Dubai and Japan and all of and New York and wherever they are and help answer questions about sex, love and addiction because people just don't get this stuff. And I do. So I'm glad to offer help. And just like you guys are giving away your time, I think that's the best thing we can be able to do to people is pass it on. Uh, that's yeah. it. This is a, this is an act of service and a vital part of our recovery. Let's talk about sex and porn next time. We'll get it to do a podcast and talk about sex, porn, and addiction. That's always fun. Oh, I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, Dr. Rob, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Look forward to another conversation sometime in the future. In the meantime, blessings on you. Thank you. Uh, uh, and your hard work on doing on, on your writing now you uh, yeah, I'm, I'm preparing, you're, you're doing the the clinical yeah, guide fantastic. to codependence hey do me a favor guys um send me a copy of the link and send me a copy of the show and yeah. uh, or whatever it is so i can help push it out over social media on my end and absolutely. um have fun with your edit yeah absolutely thanks so much it's my pleasure i hope to get All to right. chat with you again david nathan thank you all right. All right. Listeners, stay with us. Stay with us, listeners. We'll be back in a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Okay. Thank you. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you. You can, uh, thank you. It was a pleasure. Uh, again, send me the link so I can take a good look at it and get it out there and, and help yeah. grow your podcast. Okay. Yeah. We we'll usually, we usually have these ready by Monday or Tuesday, uh, Rob, just FYI. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, there's going to be a lot of people home without a lot to do. And this yeah. kind of stuff is going to happen. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> Oh, I, I'm yeah, creating I know. a lot more video and online content this week because I'm thinking they're going to be wanting it. Yeah, so, yeah fantastic. Have a good okay. One. Thank you. All right, we'll see you. Bye bye. And we are back on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Well, David, what did you think? You know, I. I really feel like this is a revolutionary podcast today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really, I don't think that's overstating it because what I experienced and, and I actually, I've got to, I admit to tell Dr. Rob this, I actually have recommended the pro-dependence book to someone before I've even read it just because I love the premise of it so much. Mm, and mm. Uh, just the fact that <laughs> yeah, <laughs> spouses, family members, partners have a voice 
that says, maybe we viewed you in a really skewed lens. Yeah. I got to tell you, you know, I'm already, I've been casting around for what to do for my wife today on her 74th birthday. Ah. Now, uh, now that we, the party has been canceled, I want to celebrate her. And I've got to tell you, uh, I'm feeling, I'm always, I'm so grateful for this woman. Mm, and yeah. she is my hero. Absolutely. And I know, you know, and I would not be alive. I don't think I'd be alive without her. Mm. And I'm so grateful that I still have a marriage and a relationship that she stayed with me. But my appreciation for her, as great as it has been, is even greater after listening to Dr. Weiss. Yeah. And I just don't know that there is a way that I can properly celebrate her life today. I want to do my very best to give her the greatest uh, birthday of her life. Yeah. Because she is a hero. Absolutely. And there are a great many other heroes out there. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I would love to hear the reaction of our listeners to today's uh, episode. Please write to us. And uh, first of all, I do want to encourage you to go to Dr. Weiss's uh, webinars, uh, his podcasts, and interact directly with him. But we'd also like to hear what you think, what your reaction is, any questions or comments that you're not able to uh, pose directly to him. And I don't know how you wouldn't be able to, but we'll be glad to communicate those. You can reach us. Best way to do it via is by email, you can reach us at positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And we love those letters. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap for this time. It's been a great hour. It's been for me, uh, you know, a life altering hour. I look forward to next week's episode. We've got another great guest upcoming until then. I'm Nate. I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 